Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Uh, we are humbled what a privilege we have in being in your presence, uh, indeed in sensing your smile upon us in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray that you would come to us now as we continue to worship you, uh, not as speakers, but as listeners, as we listen to the voice of our Lord Jesus, as he speaks to us from his word. And we pray that we would indeed be conscious of his presence and his authority and his grace and his power. We ask that you would draw us to him as individuals and as a church family, as his body, that we may be brought to kneel inwardly before him, to love him still, and to love him more, the love of Jesus. So we pray that we would know that love today, and indeed that we are his loved ones. We pray in his name, love God's people said, Amen. Amen. First John chapter 5, starting verse 6, please your full attention to the word of God. <clears throat> This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. But there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we reject the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. But see it because he does not believe in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So for the reading of God's word, may he indeed add his blessing upon it at this time. <clears throat> well, John has taught us much as we work through this first epistle, this first letter of his, about loving and living and truth and lie and light and darkness. <clears throat> and we're getting to the end of his letter. Uh, our passage today focuses on the testimony about Jesus. Uh, next week, the letter closes focusing on prayer. Uh, but today we see that God, uh, that to receive God's testimony concerning his son, Jesus, is to receive eternal life. And to reject that testimony is to reject, to forfeit eternal life. And this is so important for John, because remember, John loves these people. Right? He was their shepherd, he was their pastor. And so he loves them. He's concerned about what's going on there. Remember, they've been lied to and agitated spiritually, emotionally, relationally by those liars who deny these very core things about Christ, about the faith that they had placed their lives into, given by the apostles, the sent ones with the authority of Jesus Christ. They denied who Christ was. They denied his incarnation. They denied his saviorhood. They denied that he was the Messiah. John is clear and he's urgent without wavering about the importance of the testimony about Jesus. It is everything. No gray area for John here. And he says that these false teachers' rejection of the incarnation was precisely a rejection of this testimony about Jesus. There's a sense of legality in these words in our passage this morning. 
um, a kind of a courtroom kind of testimony. Like when witnesses are brought forth to testify and to swear to the truth of something. And here God the Father brought witnesses concerning the truth of his son, Jesus Christ, and his incarnation. And John is saying that these liars and their followers that are rejecting that very thing, Christ's incarnation, are rejecting the testimony of the Father and the witnesses that he has sent to bear witness to the truth of these very things. And so we'll look at this morning briefly what John means when he says uh, what he says here, the explanation, uh, and then what that means to us as the body of Christ, um, even us today. So John opens this passage with a verse, and part of this verse, which has caused many to get paused and to be perplexed and to wonder what this means, right? It's been explained in, in many, many ways, and many, uh, much ink has been spilled trying to explain what this means in 1 John 5, 6. When he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only the, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth, right? And so people have been confused about this verse because of this reference to the water and the blood. What does that mean? What exactly is he talking about? It seems peculiar, right? He doesn't explain what he's talking about. It's just a reference and he goes on. This is one of those instances where John's recipients uh, undoubtedly knew what John's talking about, what he is referring to. He knew clearly what he's talking about, right? They had a relationship with each other. They knew one another. It was a given. It was something that was understood. It's like I remember when I was younger, uh, I would ask my grandmother, how are you? And she said, fair to middling. I had no idea what she was talking about. I had zero understanding what that was. I don't know if it was generational or regional, but I had no idea what she meant or what she was referring to. But some, surely her, you know, her, uh, her, her context, her community, her, her friends and her peers knew what they were talking about. The John's recipients undoubtedly knew what this reference was to, right? He had essentially been, he had pastored them. He was their shepherd. And so it's likely that he used this phrase to explain uh, and explain it beforehand. But what are we to think? What does this mean? What does John mean when he says this? And ultimately, what makes the most sense, and we, wouldn't, we shouldn't think that uh, what it means is beyond us or that we need an extra biblical decoder or somehow to figure this out. What makes the most sense of this phrase, the water and the blood, is that it's a reference to the baptism and the crucifixion of Christ, right? And so as we look at this, we'll look at a number of passages, um, and we see that this becomes clearer. Uh, we must remember the context of the passage, right? Context is key. And so the whole passage, the, the context of this whole passage, verses uh, 6 to 12, deals with the testimony of God the Father concerning His Son. It's about the testimony of the Father concerning the Son, His Son. That's the overall context. Or what's going on, okay? And so when, with that in mind, when we look at the baptism of Christ, we see quite clearly that Christ's baptism as an event was one where the Father testified to the identity of the Son. Okay, so let's look at a few passages. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, starting verse 29. And we'll see this unfold when we come clear for us. Uh, John 1, 29 says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him 
and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Testimony. There's a witness being born there. And so God, through the baptism of Christ, is revealing the Messiah. He's revealing the identity of Christ to Israel. And John bore witness to it. So his baptism was an official testimony of Christ's identity. When we look at the other accounts of his baptism uh, in, the, in the other gospel accounts, they tell us that the Father specifically gives testimony. Right? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Comes the voice of the Father. We also find, we'll look at it in a moment, the Holy Spirit testifying to the identity of the Son as well in this situation. So when John makes reference to the water, it's a reference to the baptism of Christ. <clears throat> and so that's the water. What if the blood? Again, we see in Scripture, it references the testimony of blood. Right? Hebrews chapter 12, if you'd like to turn there, Hebrews 12. We're going to look at a couple passages uh, from Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 22, says this. Again, reference to the testimony of the blood, the blood testifying, speaking, <clears throat> witnessing. Hebrews 12, 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in a festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of righteous men, righteous, the righteous made perfect, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Right, and so notice in verse 25, as it goes on, Hebrews says that the reader should not refuse him who is speaking through the blood. Right, so it's testimony of the blood, the blood of Christ, that is. And so there's this theme again. Testimony, testifying. Here it's the blood of Christ. And essentially what John is saying in 1 John is that we have the testimony of the water, the identification, the testimony of the baptism of Christ, right? My beloved, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, comes the voice of the water in the baptism. And then we have this testimony to the blood, the blood of Christ that speaks, that is to be listened to, that is to be heeded, the blood speaking. And then we see if we back up to chapter 9 of Hebrews, the testimony of the Spirit. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 13 says this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so we see here, even the Holy Spirit is intimately connected to the sacrifice, to, this, to the crucifixion of Christ. And if the blood speaks and testifies, 
then the work of the Spirit is also testifying to the significance of Christ's sacrifice of the crucifixion, that is, to his identity. Right? They're intimately uh, connected. And this is a big picture of what's going on. And it's not just these instances in the New Testament, right? The Old Testament is not silent about witness and testimony. Uh, some of you who are familiar with the Old Testament um, might have already thought of this passage, right? In Deuteronomy 19, chapter 15, uh, 19, 15, 19, verse 15. It says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. A single witness will not suffice. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Right? So there's the pattern set forth even way back in Deuteronomy. And so we see uh, this throughout. And what John is saying here is that there are three witnesses. Right? In, in, in compliance with the Deuter Deuteronomy's uh, uh, mandate here, the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Again, it's language of the courtroom. There are three that, this is first John 5, 7, 8, for there are three that testify. Three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. And his point here is that the three witnesses agree to the truth about Jesus, about his identity, about his reality, about the historicity of Christ, about his incarnation especially, which is being denied. And John says about those who deny these things, that in rejecting them, they are rejecting God's testimony about Jesus, his son. And they're not only rejecting God's testimony, but horrifyingly, they are rejecting the salvation, redemption offered by God. Verse 9. If you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Right? And so you see here, similar to our last week's passage we looked at, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Right? Remember in verse 20 of the previous chapter, chapter 4, 1 John 4.20, he said, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Right? And similarly here, we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Right? If someone accepts the testimony of man, then he should all the more accept the testimony of God concerning the Son. And not only testimony, the testimony, but the God who was sent a threefold witness about his son's identity. But when somebody rejects the testimony of God the Father by his son, it's not simply indifference or apathy. Right? Denying the testimony of God the Father is a bullet calling him a liar. It's not a neutral, just passive thing. It's an affront to God. He's calling God a liar, verse 10 tells us. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Right? Again, John could not be more black and white, right? more stark, more matter-of-fact. It's an either-or proposition, John tells us here. Either accept the Son and receive eternal life, and believe in the testimony of the Father concerning his Son, or if you reject it, which is calling God a liar. And it's not only calling him a liar, but it's to reject eternal life, the life offered in Christ. We see this in verse 11 and 12. 
And this is the testimony that God gave gave us. Uh, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Right? Uh, the most insulting thing to the world are these exclusive tree claims of, of Christianity, right? It's not a small thing. Nothing's more serious or graver than this. The testimony of God concerning the Son, the rejection of that is the rejection of life. And to reject the testimony of God about His Son, which is really a rejection of the Gospel, right? It's a testimony that one doesn't have, cannot have eternal life. It's a serious matter. Many, many people deny this again, that Jesus is the only way to the Father, exclusively the way to heaven. And many in their arrogance say that this is arrogant to claim that. And you notice the reversible accusation there. But you've heard the common response that God just hasn't given enough evidence for me to believe in him. The famous philosopher is quoted to have says, they will claim ignorance and say, well, you know, God just hasn't given me enough information. Or am I going to believe? And this is simply a rejection of the true testimony of God the Father concerning the Son, Jesus Christ. And it's the rejection is as old as man. Right? In the Garden of Eden, it's the same thing. When Adam he doubted the testimony of God concerning the tree of knowledge, saying, do not eat from that tree. They didn't believe it, and they ate. And surely they died. They surely died. And against his eye, dying, they died. And so rejecting the testimony of God is, is an ancient problem. And it's also particular to Christ, especially. Now remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Christ tells us that the rich man died and he went to Hades. But he could see Lazarus, Lazarus and Abraham. And the rich man begged Abraham to send Lazarus to his father and to his five brothers to warn them about the judgment of God. And what did Abraham say in response in this parable? In Luke 16, verse 29, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear them. God's testimony. They have it. Let them hear it. They're rejecting it. It's God's testimony one more time concerning the truth of the gospel. And remember the testimony about Christ's identity and his mission in the law and the prophets. It is rejected again and again. Remember Christ said, all that is written in the law and the prophets testify about me. But the, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And again, in verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, right, the testimony of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. But the thing is, in 1 John, it's not a parable. There, people were denying the life, death, and resurrection, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They didn't think he ever really came in the first place. Someone who only appears to be in the flesh, a man, doesn't, can't die. They certainly can't die in the place of anyone, right? As the false teachers were saying. The rejection of God's testimony is ancient and it's ongoing. And it's awful and it has eternal, truly eternal consequences. It is God's word 
and to reject it is a height of folly. The call remains the same. But the call remains the same throughout time. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent, his Son, in Christ Jesus, and have life. Have life. Well, one thing I think is important for us today to consider, right? Uh, we who are believers, not deniers, we believe, we trust in the word. That's the profession of our mouths. What warning or exhortation is there for us here in 1 John chapter 5? Right? And it has to do with the testimony of God's word. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do we accept it or do we reject his word? Right? Do we accept all of it? What, what pet pockets of denial do you have right, concerning God's word? Because right? God's word, the testimony, is not a buffet where you take what you like and you pass over what you don't, pass over what seems gross or distasteful or unpleasant. In what ways are we professing Christ but betraying that profession with our lives and the decisions we make and the sins that we hold so closely to? Right? His word says be patient. Do I pass that over because it's so easy for me to be impatient? It says not to lust or gossip or be angry. Do we nevertheless comfortably dwell in those very things, those, those very sins? Do we align ourselves with the world and the people of the world, even though God forbids it? Or do we idolize things other than Christ, right? Our worship, our focus, our attention, politics, sports, whatever that thing might be. Anything other than placing our affection, our full affection on Jesus Christ. You will have no competitors, right? Anything that vies for attention or vies for your affection other than Christ must go. It has to go. Or how often do we see people, even in the church, raise issues or traditions to the level of Scripture, though they are not in Scripture? Right? We see this in every tradition all the time. I had a lot of friends in seminary who were from a particular background from churches that required for membership that the people not only agree with every point of that church's confession, but they had to pass a test in systematic theology. It's in, there's nothing like that can be found in, in God's testimony in his word, right? God's word does not require that you master Burkhoff's systematic theology in order to become a member of Christ's church. We should grow in our awareness, brothers and sisters of the ways that we sin in this way and deny God's word, God's testimony. Right? What are the poles that we see historically, uh, the pendulum swing historically between legalism and antinomianism, right? Between legalism and no law at all. These also violate this very, the very thing, the testimony of God's word. A friend of mine put it this way, he said, regarding legalism and lawlessness, he said that the one says that Christ died so that guy can go on sinning. The other says that Christ died but didn't do enough to save, which is why I have to do more. Both are lies from the pit of hell. And both disregard the true testimony that God has given concerning his son. That he has accomplished redemption. He's given his way, his will for our lives, the rule for our life in his word and his law. So brothers and sisters, as we close, just let us be mindful of these things. And when we are convicted of them, and we will be, and we should be, and we are, because we are getting perfect, 
on this side of glory. When we are, let us again in a fresh go to this Jesus who alone saves. This Jesus in whom alone is forgiveness and life. And partake again of the refreshing waters of the gospel. And again, we remain yet imperfect this side of glory. But our Christ, our Savior, Christ Jesus, is perfect. And he has given that righteousness to you who believe and trust in him. The glory of the gospel. As we go from here back into the world, let us remember these things. Let us praise him. Let us live our lives out of gratitude. Great gratitude for that we have been given life and being plucked from the fire. For what? To live for him. To praise his Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are holy, that you are just, and that you are powerful. Lord, we praise you for the way that you work and for your wonder and love and great mercy. We do pray, dear Father, Help us to trust and believe what you tell us. Help us to embrace the bigger picture and in the trials and pains and strains of our life that we would do so in a way that brings honor to your name. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, and help us to walk in the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.